Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin. We are continuing to read at page 184 today for this reading, which is Lecture 13. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of commentaries on the, bo- on the book of the prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Lecture 13 we, be- we began yesterday to explain what the prophet means when he says that there would be no more a remembrance of the Ark of the Covenant after the return of the Israelites into their country and their increase in it, even because there would be no discord among them as there had been before they were led into exile. For the ten tribes, we know, worshipped God after their own manner, as they had departed from the pure and simple teaching of the law. The prophet then means that they would all be the worshippers of the only true God and that there would be among them such a unity of faith that the Jew would not call his would not call God his God only, and that an Israelite would not desire for himself another God. Hence he adds, It shall not ascend on the heart, that is, such a thought shall no more come into their minds, and they shall not remember it, that is, no monuments of their ancient disunion shall exist any more among them, and they shall not visit it, which means they shall no more come stealthily into Jerusalem, who may wish to offer sacrifices to God, and in short, he says, no such thing shall be done. Footnote. The literal rendering of this verse I conceive to be the following. Verse 16. And it shall be that ye shall multiply and be fruitful in the land. In those days, saith Jehovah, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of Jehovah. And it shall not come to their mind, nor shall they mention it, nor visit it and not made shall it be any more. The two first lines seem connected with the former verse. There is a gradation in the last three lines. It shall not be thought of, much less mentioned or named, as given by the Septuagint, still less be visited, and much less still be made. This gradation is destroyed by Blaney by rendering the first line, nor shall it be the delight of their heart. Literally it is, and it shall not ascend in the heart. The heart means often in Hebrew the mind, and to come to mind is the idea. It would not be thought of. The phrase occurs in this book in two other places, chapter 731, and not to think or not to come to mind is the most suitable meaning, as it 
as it is given in our version. The purpose of this kind of gradation is to render the thing more certain and indisputable so that there might be no room for doubt. Editor and footnote. Then he says, At that time called shall be Jerusalem the throne of Jehovah. The prophet may appear inconsistent with himself by saying that Jerusalem would be the throne of God, and yet that the Jews would make no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. But the two clauses wholly agree, for he means that Jerusalem would be the seat and habitation of the eternal God, without any dispute being raised among them. The Israelites, before their exile, boasted that they retained the worship of the true God, and so magnificent was this display, and so great the pomp, that Jerusalem was quite obscure as to any external splendor. But the prophet says that this distinction would no longer exist, and that the Israelites would no more contend with the Jews, for all would allow Jerusalem to be the sanctuary of God. As though he had said, pure religion shall flourish among them all without exception, such as had not been done before. And this passage he more clearly confirms by the words which follow. Assemble into it shall all nations to the name of Jehovah, or on account of the name of Jehovah, L-A-M-E-D is the Hebrew, is here instead of a causal particle, shall all nations assemble at Jerusalem. Footnote. This seems to be the best rendering. Blaney leaves out the word Jerusalem, but for no sufficient reason. The whole verse is as follows. In that day called shall they Jerusalem, the throne of Jehovah, and gathered into it shall be all the nations, for the name of Jehovah, even to Jerusalem, and they shall no more walk after the resolutions of their wicked heart. Editor. End footnote. We see that there is nothing doubtful in these words. For the prophet distinctly declares that the worship of God, such as the law required, would attain such esteem that all nations would be ready to embrace whatever would be taught by the Jews. But by all nations we are to understand strictly the ten tribes, as they are called many nations in several places. If anyone prefers to extend the meeting, let him enjoy his own opinion. As I have said yesterday, the Jews think that the time of the Messiah is described here because what Jeremiah promises has never been fulfilled. For there was no assembly of nations when the Jews returned from exile to their own country as the Jews alone returned at that time. Hence they conclude that this passage can be explained in no other way than by referring it to the kingdom of Messiah, which indeed I confess to be true. But as that return and restoration of the people was a prelude of Christ's kingdom, the prophets ever begin at that time whenever they prophesy of the church being renewed. It is indeed true that the restoration of the whole world was to be looked for through the coming of Christ. Yet God began to restore his church when he stretched forth his hand to the Jews and when they built the city and the temple, which was necessary to be done before Christ came forth. But as to this passage, whether by nations we understand the ten tribes, or both kingdoms, or all nations indiscriminately, the meaning of the prophet is equally clear, which is this, that the church would become larger than before when God restored the people, and that God would then cause true religion to flourish, unaccompanied with envy and strife. What follows confirms the opinion that the passage is to be explained of the two kingdoms. Walk, he says, shall they know more after the evil hardness of their own heart.
Footnote. Evil is connected with hardness, but it belongs properly to their heart. The word rendered hardness is a non-English word, it's a Hebrew word, a plural noun found eight times in Jeremiah. Here and in chapter 724, 914, 1108, 810, 1612, 1812, 2317, and twice elsewhere. It is so variously re- rendered by the Septuagint that they evidently did not understand its specific meaning, thoughts, devices things pleasing or agreeable, wandering. These words are used for it in Jeremiah. The Vulgate ever renders it pravitas, pravity, wickedness. The Targum uniformly renders it thought or imagination. The latter word is used in our version, with a marginal reading, stubbornness. The Syriac and Arabic vary as much as the Septuagint, appetite, lust, will, etc. To walk after precedes it in most instances, except in chapter 18.12, where it is preceded by doing. Now, to do the hardness of the heart is no suitable expression, for is imagination, I'm sorry, nor is imagination or stubbornness anything better. It can be derived from no verb, which means to think or to imagine, or which has any connection with depravity or wickedness, or with appetites or lusts. Nor can we derive it from a non-English word, which those do who render it stubbornness, or that will suit the passage referred to chapter referred to in chapter 18.12. It must then come from non-English word, to direct, to regulate, to rule, to exercise authority. It occurs three times in a reduplicate form as a participle noun in Esther 1.22, and as a verb and a participle in Hithel in Numbers 16.13, where it is applied in the sense of making oneself a prince or a tyrant. The literal meaning of the noun, then, is, in the plural number, predominances, domineerings, arbitraments, and it may be rendered determinations, resolutions, predominant influences, or inclinations. Walk shall they no more after the resolutions of their wicked heart. It is used in chapter 724, an apposition with counsels being evidently a stronger word. It seems to mean resoluteness or resolvedness, a full determination, a willful decision. Parkhurst renders it the ruling principle. Editor. End footnote. It was not usual to speak thus of heathen nations who had ever been strangers to the teaching of the law, as this then can only be specifically applied to the Jews and the Israelites. That explanation is the most to be approved, which makes all nations to mean the ten tribes, or the whole people. Then is added what is of the same meaning. In those days shall come the house of Judah with the house of Israel. It hence appears that the prophet speaks of the posterity of Abraham and not of other nations, for he adds this verse as explanatory. It might indeed have been asked, What does this mean, all nations shall come? To this he answers, The house of Israel shall unite with the house of Judah. That is, there shall be no more hatred between these two nations, for they shall acknowledge one another as brethren 
and know that they have arisen from the same source and that they ought to be one people. In short, the prophet explains in this verse what he had said before, and we ought especially to notice what he adds. Come shall they together from the land of the north into the land which I have given to to be possessed by their fathers. The Jews had not yet gone into exile. The prophet said this to them while they were quiet, as it were, in their own nest at Jerusalem and in the country around, nor could he convince them of what they afterwards found to be true to to, to their great loss, that an exile was nigh them, like that which they then saw had happened to their brethren, the Israelites. But yet the prophet spoke of them as though they had been exiled and dwelt like the Israelites in the north country. Come together, he says, shall they from the land of the north. Footnote. Calvin uses the word, the verb, venient, shall come, twice. But the first verb is to walk and expresses the associating of Judah with Israel, or their union. The words are, in those days walk will the house of Judah with the house of Israel, and come shall they together from the land of the north to the land which I made their fathers to inherit. They would be first united, and then advance together to their own land. Editor, and footnote. They might have objected and said, We are as yet enjoying our own inheritance, enjoying our own inheritance, and no one can drive us hence, for it cannot be that God shall be deprived of his own temple, as he has chosen for himself a perpetual habitation among us. Such words were no doubt clamorously spoken by them. But the prophet here repels their vain confidence and says that their only hope of deliverance was in looking forward to the restoration which the Lord would grant them after they had been for a time banished from their own country. Now the prophet here sets forth to them the benefit which more submission the which which more submission the punishment they were to endure. For they might have a hundred times despaired had they no hope that this exile would be only for a time and that they would again be gathered together with the brethren the Israelites. It now follows, verse 19. But I said, How shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, Thou shalt call me my father and shalt not turn away from me. It is not my purpose to mention all the expositions of this verse, but it is enough to show what seems to be the meaning of the prophet. Whether I touch on opinions which I disapprove, this I feel constrained to do, because when they present the appearance of truth, readers may be deceived by them. But when the truth itself is sufficiently conspicuous, I am not disposed to spend labor in refuting the opinions of others. What then the words of the prophet mean is this. God here asks, How was it possible that the race of Abraham could again be propagated since it was nearly dead? The answer is, It shall be when thou wilt call me father, and turn not away from me. The question was asked that the Jews might feel as though their condition was past remedy. And doubtless, since they had so greatly and so obstinately provoked God by their wickedness, they might have seemed to have become wholly lost. God then assumes here the character of one filled with astonishment, as though he had said, Ye are indeed in a state of despair, there is no hope of your salvation. But yet, as it is my purpose again to restore you, I wish now to find out a way by which your race may again be propagated. How then is this to be done? He shows that the only thing required was to call him father, not with the mouth, but really from the heart.
We now then perceive the meaning of the prophet. For he humbles the Israelites by thus ascribing astonishment to God as though it was a thing very difficult to be done. But at the same time, he gives them hope because salvation was prepared for them, provided they call on God with a sincere heart and acknowledge him as their father and that perseveringly without ever turning aside from him. In short, God intimates that the Israelites were like dead men and that their salvation was hopeless without a resurrection. He yet promises them salvation on this condition, that they called on him and did this, not with a double heart, nor by a sudden impulse, such as soon vanishes away. For he says, Thou shalt not turn aside from me, that is, be always obedient to me, and I will prove that I shall not be called in vain a father by you. It follows. Verse 20. Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her, tra- from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. He confirms the first clause of the preceding verse, for he has said that it could hardly be that the Jews would recover what they had lost and be formed again in a new people. And he shows the reason, because they were like an adulteress, as he had before stated. But he did not yet wish to take away every hope, only he insists on this, that they were seriously to consider their sins, in order that they might become displeased with themselves and flee to God's mercy for refuge. Nor did he do this much, so much for their sake, as for the sake of the people among whom he dwelt. For he had respect, as it has often been stated, especially to the Jews who had become so hardened in their vices as not to think that this example by which God intended to terrify them so as to bend their hard hearts to repentance belonged to him. Hence it was for this reason that God so severely reproved Israel, for he had said before that the Jews were still worse. He afterwards subjoins, verse 21, A voice was heard upon the high places weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the word of their Lord. What I have stated becomes now more evident, that the case of the Israelites is here set before the Jews, that the perverse, whom God had spared, might know that the same punishment impended over them, except they returned in due time to him. For the prophet declares that the Israelites were weeping and in tears, because they had departed from him from their God and violated their pledge to him. For what purpose did he do this? That the Jews who indulged themselves in their own pleasures might be awakened and be convinced that except they anticipated God's judgments, the same tears and the same weeping were prepared for them. The Israelites, indeed, did not as yet thus weep and show signs of true repentance, for the prophet does not here commend their feeling or their piety, but intimates that they were thus severely afflicted because they had forsaken their God. A voice, he says, was heard on high places. That is, it was everywhere sufficiently known how cruelly the Israelites were oppressed by their enemies. Now they cried, then they called themselves the most wretched of men. Why was this lamentation? Because they had perverted their ways. It is, then, the same as though he had said that it was a monstrous perverseness in the Jews, that being warned by the punishment of their brethren, they did not repent, for the calamity which happened to the Israelites filled all men with terror. That kingdom had indeed flourished for a long time, but the land had been emptied of its inhabitants and was occupied by wild beasts until some were sent from Persia and other parts in the east to cultivate it. How could a land so pleasant and so fruitful have become like a desert? 
Even because God had so predicted, ye have been neglected, he says. My Sabbath and your land shall rest, and it shall no more be wearied by you. Leviticus 36, 34, 35. It was an awful sight, and nations far and wide were able to see how great must have been the impiety of that people on whom God had taken such dreadful vengeance. Were not the Jews who had this solitude, I'm sorry, had this solitude before their eyes and this devastation of the land extremely stupid in overlooking all this? We now see the design of the prophet when he says, A voice on high places was heard, as though the Israelites cried on the tops of mountains. And he adds, the weeping of the supplications. But he does not mean that they were prayers which arose from faith, but simply that they were such lamentations as betokened misery and wretchedness. In giving a reason, the prophet mentions not what the Israelites confessed, but only shows that the cause why they so deeply deplored their calamities. It was because they had perverted their ways and forgotten Jehovah their God. Footnote. The verse may be rendered thus. A voice on the high places heard as the weeping, the supplications of the people of Israel, because they had perverted their way, had forgotten Jehovah their God. Instead of high places, Blaney has plains, but there is no satisfactory reason for the change. As the verb in Hebrew commonly precedes its nominative, the construction adopted above is the most suitable to the character of the language. Editor and footnote. He afterwards adds, verse 22, Return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. God here exhorts the Israelites to repent, that by their example he might move the Jews. The benefit of what is here taught might indeed have reached to the miserable captives and exiles. But as Jeremiah was especially the teacher of his own nation, he labored chiefly no doubt for their advantage, as we have before stated. God then here declares that he would be reconcilable to the Israelites, how grievously soever they had sinned. He afterwards introduces them as answering, Behold, we return, or we shall come to thee. For the prophet speaks here of the future conversion of the ten tribes. It is then a dialogue between God and the Israelites. God himself freely invites them to repent. Return, he says, ye rebellious children. And then he promises to be a physician to heal their diseases. I will heal thy transgressions. That is, I will blot out thy sins and absolve thee from guilt. God then undertakes to do these things. First to stimulate the Israelites to repentance and then to give them the hope of pardon. And he says that a remedy was provided for them, except they hardened themselves. Now the Israelites, on the other hand, made this answer, Behold, we shall come to thee. Here Jeremiah condemns the obstinacy of his own nation by saying that the Israelites, when thus kindly invited by God, would not be perverse, but would, on the contrary, be tractable and obedient. This indeed was not fulfilled when a liberty to return was given to the people, except in the case of a few who had a right feeling and preferred the glory of God to their temporal advantages. But the number was small, nor was it a matter of surprise, for God had not previously said, without reason, that if one came from a city and two from a tribe, he would be received, though others continued fixed in their perverseness. However, this may have been 
God here intimates that the Israelites would not however this may have been, God here intimates that the Israelites would not be so refractory as not to obey his admonition when the hope of pardon and salvation would be presented to them. And this is mentioned, that the perverseness of the Jews might appear more detestable. But some think that the Israelites are here upbraided because they hypocritically pretended that they always saw God. Hence they elicit this meaning. Ye indeed say, Behold, we return to thee, thou art our God, as though he condemned their hypocrisy because they falsely alleged that they always sought him. But this view seems to me foreign to the intention of the prophet. Hence I doubt not but that Jeremiah sets before the Jews, as in a picture, what ought to have constrained them not to persist so obstinately in their sinful courses. Behold, he says, God is prepared to receive into favor your brethren, who are undone and past all hope, and when they shall fear God's voice kindly and graciously inviting them to himself, they will doubtless return. Why then do not ye obey? And in this same sense is to be taken what follows. Surely deceit is from the hills, and the multitude of mountains, or from the multitude of mountains, as the letter, non-English letter, is to be repeated. Here the prophet more fully expresses the evidence of the repentance, as though he had said, We have been deceived by the hills and the multitude of mountains. We thought that there would be more defense from a large number of gods than if we worshipped one god. This deception has led to ruin. Let then all these deceits be now discarded, for we shall be content with the only true God. In short, the Israelites confess in these words that they had been drawn into ruin by the worst of errors, while they sought many gods and did not acquiesce in the one true God. Then they add, For surely in Jehovah our God is salvation. They set here the one true God in opposition to all their idols, as though they had said that the cause of all their evils was that they did not continue in the service of the one true God, but wandered after a multitude of gods. We hence see that these two things cannot possibly be connected, to worship the true God, and to seek for ourselves various other gods, and to form vain hopes as they do who are not satisfied with the only true God. Footnote. The literal rendering of these two verses is the following. Verse 22. Return ye apostate children. I will heal your apostasies. Behold us, we come to thee, for thou art Jehovah our God. Verse 23. Surely in vain are the hills, the multitude of mountains, Surely in or through Jehovah our God is the salvation of Israel. The word rendered apostate does not mean rebellious, but such as turn away, that is, from God. And the word for apostasies means the same, being from the same root. The non-English letter before the word for hills is not a preposition as it is commonly taken, but a formative, so it appears from all the versions. Blaney conjectures that it belongs to the former word and makes it another non-English word, but then he does not account for the non-English word prefixed to it. There is no different reading. The Septuagint is uh, for a lie were the hills. The Vulgate, Syriac, and Arabic are materially the same. Editor. End footnote. It follows, verse 24. For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. They confirm more fully the same complaint, that God had by manifest proof showed the sins of the nation. 
for he has consumed their labor, that is, whatever they had acquired by labor. He also adds sheep and cattle and then sons and daughters. He does not indeed ascribe this consumption to God, but the mode of speaking is more emphatic when he says, Shame has consumed the labor of our fathers from our childhood. For by shame he understands wickedness, of which they ought to have been ashamed. The meaning, then, is that all the evils they had endured could in no other way be accounted for, inasmuch as the whole was to be ascribed to their wickedness. Our shame, then, that is, our wickedness, has consumed the labor of our fathers. Footnote. Rather, and the shame, that is, the idol worship referred to in the preceding verse. The article non-English word is prefixed to a noun. This is the view taken by Gattaker and Blaney. See chapter 1113, editor, and footnote. It follows, verse 25. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. As the Israelites say here nothing new, but continue the same subject, I propose only to touch briefly on the words, lest I should be too tedious. They say then that they were lying in their miseries. And why? Because they had dealt wickedly with God. We see that they are explaining what they had confessed, even that the labor of their fathers had been consumed by their shame, that is, that their wickedness, by their wickedness, and they ascribed to themselves what might have been put to the account of their fathers, because they knew that they were heirs to their iniquity. We have lain, they said, to our, in our shame. Footnote. Calvin seems to have followed the Septuagint in rendering the verb in the past tense. The Vulgate and Syriac retain the future of the original, but the Targum gives the present, and rightly so, as the future in Hebrew is often to be so taken. It is the same in Welsh. The future conveys the meaning of the present. This might, in that language, be rendered exactly according to the Hebrew, and the future would be understood as expressing what the present state of things is. In English, the present must be used, as it is in the confession of the penitent when returned to God. We lie in our shame, and cover us as our disgrace, because against Jehovah our God have we sinned, we and our fathers, from our child even to this day, and we have not hearkened to the voice of Jehovah our God. Editor and footnote. They here shortly confessed that they were deservedly miserable, that they could not accuse God of cruelty as that he afflict as that he afflicted them too severely. How so? Because they were lying in their own shame, and their own disgrace covered them, as though they said that the cause of all their evils was to be found in their sins, and that it was not to be sought anywhere else. Because we and our fathers, they say, have done wickedly. By these words, they intimate that they had acted thus, not for a day only, but had been so perverse that from early life they had imbibed the iniquity of their fathers, and thus added evils to evils. They had said before that the labor of their fathers had been consumed from their childhood, thereby signifying the continuance of their punishment. For God had not for a day chastised them, but had often repeated his scourges, and yet without any benefit. Now they add, as we have from our childhood dealt wickedly towards our God, so also he has warned us from our childhood to return to him, 
And it has been our fault that we have not returned, for he called us. But as we are obstinate, so also God has justly executed on us his vengeance. They afterwards say, even to this day, by which they confirm what I have already stated, that they had been so perverse as to not as not to cease from their vices. At the same time, he points out the source of all their wickedness. They hearkened not to the voice, to the voice of Jehovah. Had they gone astray, and had God been silent, their fault might have been extenuated. But as God had daily sent prophets to them, who never ceased to cry in their hearing, and yet they continued deaf, their perverseness in their sinful courses was inexcusable. <coughs> We then see that their sin was increased by this circumstance, that they refused to hear the voice of God, as though he had said that God had done his part in calling them back from the way of ruin, but they had just been so obstinate as to disregard his favor, and that they thus justly suffered, not only for their impiety, but also for their ingratitude and perverse wickedness. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that as we cease not, though favored with many blessings, to provoke Thee by our misdeeds, as though we avowedly carried on war against Thee, O grant that that we, being at length warned by these examples, by which Thou invitest us to repentance, may restrain our depraved nature, and in due time repent, and so devote ourselves to Thy service, that Thy name through us may be glorified, and that we may strive to bring into the way of salvation those who seem to be now lost, so that thy mercy may extend far and wide, and that thus thy salvation, obtained through Christ thine only begotten Son, may be known and embraced by all nations. Amen. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you send us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you do want to join our list using the email address that you have supplied. Your information, your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc. SWRB makes available on the web as well our, our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends 
but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of this message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind. Live in peace. The God of love and peace shall be with you.